0: Morning again, everyone. Morning. I've heard it said many times in uh, many different ways that everyone is sort of the hero of their own story. Um, or maybe another way of putting it, uh, everyone is the star of their own show. And really, it's kind of inevitable. We can kind of understand why that would be. Our own perspective well, it's the only one we've got. We walk around every day looking at the world through one set of eyes. We walk around every day only really seeing the world from our own perspective. And honestly, I think it tends to make us a little selfish. We're very naturally selfish and self-centered simply because our default position is seeing things only from where we stand. If you ever think about the number of things that you see in a given day, the number of inputs that you've had just this morning since you got out of bed, the number of thoughts you've had, the number of experiences that you've had. If you take a look at just the raw data of all that your brain is processing, just what it's done just so far this morning, it would blow your mind just to, to get some concept of just the vast amount of data. Now, multiply that by nearly 7 billion. Well, no wonder we only see things from our own perspective. There is so much experience out there, so many different perspectives out there, that in the flesh, as we are right now, it's all we can handle just to deal with what comes our way. But like I said, that tends to lead us to a certain self-centered perspective on things. Very naturally so, very understandably so. But we still tend to see the world as just from our own perspective. It's hard sometimes to think about, okay, that person you just had a conversation with, you know, while they were in your sphere of influence, while they were before you, they sort of felt like, you know, sort of a a guest star, a supporting character in your story. But now they're off somewhere else doing something else. And so that doesn't really matter right now because your story is continuing along your path. But do you ever just sit down to think about the number of, you know, all the people that you come across every day? And how all of the thoughts and the feelings, the experiences, the things that you're going through each day, they've got a whole other set of them that are just as complex, that are just as interesting, that matter just as much as your own. It's hard for us to think that way. Last week, I touched on briefly in, in Romans 12:2. When I was talking about keeping in step with the Spirit and not conforming to this world, a verse, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to, to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And that's a great verse, and it stands well alone in isolation. But what comes immediately following it, I think is works as a pretty good antidote to that self-centered perspective that we so naturally have. And it's one of our boys' memory verses, so if you hear them speaking along, don't worry about it. As For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. It's a little bit easier to do that when we have this shift in perspective. When we realize that we are not just ourselves. We're not just our own. It's not just our own story that's playing out. But that we're actually part of something far bigger. And we see over and over again these metaphors and scriptures of us being the body of Christ. How we've been put together to function as the body of Christ. Not just independently, not just in isolation, but we are part of something larger. It helps us to break out of that narrow perspective. So it brings us back to the reading that we had just a moment ago. And I know it was a little on the long side, so I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But... A lot of times we look at this passage in in 1 Corinthians 12 and we're talking about unity when we're talking about the diversity of gifts that we have. And that's an important message to take away from this, how we all have these different roles to play and one really isn't any more important than the other. That God gives honor to all of these different roles and he's put us together for a reason so that we can be greater than the sum of our parts, that we together could do what we could never do alone. And that's one of the reasons that God has put us together this way. And so, yes, each part has a different function. But I think another great message of this passage is that none of us can work in isolation. None of us can even do the things that we've been called to do as individuals. None of us can do that on our own. We need one another, And not only do we need one another, but the way that this this thought ends, this section ends, really kind of amazes me. When God says, he says that God put the body together so that we would have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Equal concern. Do you ever think about what that's really saying? I think that I should care as much about you and what you're doing and what's going on in your life as I care about my own. That you should care just as much about the, the life of the person sitting on the other end of the pew from you as you care about your own. Have as much concern for everyone else that's gathered here today and those who have many traveling, but those that are away from us, that we're thinking just as much about them thinking just as much about each other as we are about ourselves. That is so incredibly unnatural. That is so hard to do. Because, like I said before, our default position is simply seeing the world only through our own eyes, and that leads us to a very narrow story. It doesn't lead to that equal concern, realizing that I should care as much about you as I care about myself. Even Jesus' disciples, even as they were following him, like while they were seeing God in the flesh, giving them this perfect example of what it means to live a godly life, even they seemed to have a really hard time with this concept. Remember over in, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, I can find my bookmark here, when, when uh, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and their mother <laughs> come to Jesus, As the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but sit... But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is just one of several occasions when the disciples were really concerned with who's the greatest, who's the top, who who's in the number one position in the kingdom of God. Even these men who were watching God in the flesh day by day In his humility, in his service, one of the things they seem to be concerned with over and over again. You see it a couple of dramatic occasions in Luke when they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. There's even one moment which still just baffles me. That Jesus has just broken the bread and said, take and eat it. This is my body. And he's taken the cup and said, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. He's just showed them exactly that this Passover meal that they had been going through, that they had experienced their entire lives, that that the children of Israel had been doing for centuries, that this was about his sacrifice that was about to take place. This was about his body and his blood that was about to be offered for them. And just a few verses later, they're arguing again about who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's so unnatural for us to get out of that narrow perspective. It clearly took them a while to come together the way that Jesus intended. And so we see these things, we see this, this quarreling and, and even division and dissension we observe it so much in Scripture, we see so many warnings against it in Scripture, it can be very easy for us to think, oh, well, when I need to be unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ, what it means is don't do that. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, I guess. No, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be so concerned with who's the greatest. We shouldn't be concerned with the the arguments and the disagreements we may have. We, we want to maintain unity and peace. But I really don't think that avoiding that quarreling, that avoiding this fight about who's the best, I don't think that's really unity. You know, when when the world around you is, is stuck in reverse and going backwards, you know, hitting the brakes and sitting still might feel like a really big improvement. But it's a far cry from moving forward, to actually moving towards something better. Instead of Just trying to avoid dissension, avoiding quarrels. What if we went to the other end, the other extreme, the other side of the equation, and instead of just not destroying unity, but actually being a source of unity, being someone who actively pursues the unity of the body? And really, the more that I've thought about this, the more that I've studied this, the more I think that. One of the greatest ways that we can do that is to actually be supporting the work of each other in the kingdom. That we actually would be on one another's team, but not like this. Because see, there's only so much good that a team can do when they're sitting in the stands. You know, there's there's, there's not a lot of not a lot of helpful plays going on with that team right now. I'm not talking about unity. That's on the sidelines, unity that's up in the stands cheering on. Now, yeah, there's a place for that, and that's good to do. We should cheer each other on. We should encourage one another as we see what others are doing. But I'm talking about taking it a step further, helping your brother succeed, helping your sister flourish. I'm not talking about unity from the stands. I'm talking about unity on the field. Saying, I'm not just cheering for you, I'm on your team. I'm there with you. I'm working with you. One of my favorite things about the letters to Timothy and Titus that Paul wrote, and one of the things, I mean, there's so much wisdom in there. There's so much good advice there for these young men who are trying to serve in the kingdom. But one of my favorite things about those letters is that these were written so that others would succeed. Paul wrote these letters not out of any ambition of his own, but because he wanted to see other co-workers in Christ doing what they were doing in the kingdom, something he couldn't do himself. He couldn't be everywhere at once, saying, You have a special task that God has given you, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that you succeed. What if we all had that attitude? What if we all were so invested in the success and the flourishing spiritually of others around us? You see, I know that I'm never more encouraged about my own role and my own work in the kingdom of God than when I see someone else excited about what God's doing. Than when I see someone else who's excited about the role that they're going to play and what they want to do In the name of Jesus. Over and over again, coming back to Paul, and if you look at the introductions of so many of his letters. I'm gonna read several of them, but there were just there were just too many to get through and I couldn't choose. But if you just go through and look at the beginning of so many of the letters that he wrote, he's talking about such thankfulness that he has. That he praises God so often when he, because he's heard about their faithfulness. He hears about the good work that these others are doing. He hears that others are flourishing and succeeding, that others are excited about the gospel of Christ. And that gives him encouragement. He's thankful for those things. So I think God knows that we need to see that we don't just labor on our own. God understands that we need to see that we're not just struggling in isolation. Now, I always think about, you know, Elijah as he's in, in the cave there. We talk about the passage about the, the, the st- still small voice or the whisper or the silence or whatever your translation says when God is, is coming to Elijah. And that's a, a great passage to, to look at. But I love also what God reminds him of once he's gotten Elijah's attention. Because, see, he thinks that he's alone He thinks that it's just him standing up against all these prophets of Baal. He thinks it's just him standing against these wicked powers that don't want to follow God. But God reminds him, no, you think you're alone? No, there are plenty of others that are standing with me, and that means they're standing with you too. A couple weeks ago, you know, I said I was going to save this story because I don't like to use it more than once a year. Well, okay, here it comes. Jonathan and his armor bearer. I love that story. And I'll tell it over and over and over again if I can. When Israel, and I'll just do it in summary form this time, but when Israel was in hiding, when they were afraid... When they were afraid of this Philistine army, they were outnumbered. They were outweaponed, whatever you'd call it. I was going to say outgunned, but there's no guns. Um, anyway, um, outspeared. No, they didn't have anything to make them think that they stood a chance against this army. And so they were just waiting, cowering in fear. And then Jonathan, the son of the king, says to his armor bearer, you know what? Let's just go over there and see what happens. Maybe God is going to do something if we just get up and act. That's the Nathan paraphrase. Maybe if we just go over there and we call to them, if they tell us to to come on up there, well, then we'll know that God's given them into our hands. And so they do, and the armor bearer says, hey, that sounds like a great idea. And so they do. The two of them go up against this army that had all of Israel cowering in fear. And so they go... And God delivers the army of the Philistines into the hands of these two men. And I love that story, and I love that leadership. I love that daring risk for God. I mean, every time I read that story, I just get so mad at Saul. <laughs> because Saul messed up so much that he lost the kingdom and his family. Because, man, I mean, David, yes, was the great king, but man, I wish Jonathan had had his shot. <laughs> I wish Jonathan had had his chance, because I can't help but think that he would have done a pretty good job himself a man of that kind of faith. But in his faith and in his boldness, he goes and he does something great in the name of God. And then as, they're, as they realize in the camp what's happening, Saul says, "What you know? what's going on? What's happening in the Philistine camp? And they're like, well, Jonathan doesn't seem to be here anymore. We think that might have something to do with it. They say, okay, well, come on, let's go. Let's go join this battle. And they get in and they join the battle. And the Philistines are being destroyed and they are in retreat. They're running away. And so now the army of Israel is chasing the army of the enemy. And then all of those who had been in hiding, who had been up in the hills, up in the caves, just trying to stay out of this mess, they say, wait, God is still with us. God is still working. God is still doing something. And so they start coming down out of the hills, out of the caves to join in this fight. God knows that we need to see each other at work to know that we're not alone. Again, Paul, always so thankful hearing about the good reports of the thriving faith of others. It gives us strength when we are working with each other. And when we do that, we're a source of unity for one another. And see, the product of our unity should be more than just a good feeling. Now, we've got a good feeling here. nothing wrong with a good feeling. We have that feeling of family and community and that love for one another that I wouldn't give up for anything. I love that we have that here. But when we have that true unity, it's bigger than that. It's more than just something that feels good because we're close to one another. But the product of our unity should be a boldness, maybe even what some might consider a reckless faith, spurring one another on to love and good works. May we inspire one another and strengthen one another and pray for one another. And I mean really pray for one another. <laughs> I love this picture. I've had it for forever and I've been really wanting a chance to use it. I love this image. And see, what I'm talking about, when I say really pray for one another. I'm not talking about the little precious moments, you know, picture of, of the child calmly praying. I'm not talking about that kind of praying. I'm talking about that other kid. That kid's praying. <laughs> it's intense. He is coming to God with everything that he's got. You can see it on his face. That's the kind of prayer that I want us to be praying for each other. How often do you pray for someone else's success? How much do you pray for the ministry that you don't have a part of? Because it's someone else's gift, because it's someone else's calling. How often do we pray for that meeting that we're not a part of? That we know there's some people getting together to work on something that's trying to be that this church is trying to do in the name of Christ, but you know, that's that's someone else's stuff. I don't have to think about it. How often do we pray for the meeting that we're not at? How often do we pray for the ministry of another? How often even do we pray for our time here together? I hope we do often. So I'd suggest do pray for what we do together. Pray for our teachers. As they prepare to, to break the word of life, break the bread of life for young and old in this congregation. Maybe you're not the one downstairs in the classroom or upstairs in here doing the teaching. But what if we were all praying for those who were? Do you ever find yourself during the week praying for next Sunday's song leader as they select the songs that are going to lead our minds and hearts in worship? Pray for those who are going to be serving at the Lord's table as their words and their prayers would lead our focus back to Jesus. Pray for me, or for Jay, or for whoever happens to be delivering a sermon on Sunday. You know, I said for years that there's no way that I could ever be a preacher. There's no way that I could ever get a lesson together, something worth saying week after week after week. And my opinion still hasn't changed on that, by the way. So please pray for me. Pray for all those who would stand up and try and say something worth saying, in the name of God. I know Paul; he often requested prayer. A couple of places in Ephesians six verses eighteen through twenty, he says, "And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests." With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may, may declare it fearlessly as I should. Then in Colossians 4, he says to the church in Colossae, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Because see, I am certain that those are the kind of prayers that God is thrilled to answer. I know it gives him joy when our prayers for each other reflect his will and his heart for us. Now, honestly, I didn't intend for this really to be a lesson about prayer when I got started, when I began working on it. In fact, originally it was more about not worrying about our own preferences and our own desires and and how our unity that comes through Christ, that's not of our own making, that we should be unified, not in spite of ourselves. That was where I thought I was going to go with this. But the more I looked into this, the more I thought, the more I studied, the more I prayed about it, the more I realized that there's nothing that will unify us more than when we truly, deeply, passionately pray for one another. You can see, we pray when our hearts are moved to prayer. But our hearts are also moved when we pray. It's great the way that works out. That when there's something that we care enough about to be praying about it, to bring it before God, it's a wonderful, even miraculous thing But I think something just as miraculous happens when we do choose to go to God in prayer. That the prayers we send up to heaven are also just as powerfully written upon our own hearts. And I think that's by design because I think so many times God, and I know I say this a lot, but God wants to use us as the answers to our own prayers. Never do I feel closer to my brothers and sisters in Christ than when I've been praying for them. It's not hard to do either. Hey, We've got a a list every week of people that have requested prayer, that have said, like Paul in his letter said, that said, please pray for me, that have some concern. Maybe these are people that you don't even know. Maybe it's just a connection of someone else in this church. But I can tell you that if you bring their request to God in prayer, you will share a bond with them a bond that's bigger than anything physical. Even if you've never seen them face to face, if you've never occupied the same space with them, you'll be unified in some way. And I know that you'll feel closer to those who do have the connection, who've brought those prayers before the church. In Philippians 1, starting in verse 3, it says, I thank God every time I remember you. That he says it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And then he also says that God can testify how I long for all of you. God knows how I feel about you because I tell him about it all the time. What would happen? And what does happen when I start to see that your story is just as important? as mine that each of our stories are part of that same larger story of God that the work that you're doing the place that God has called you to serve is as just of vital importance as whatever he may have called me to do and if i treat that ministry in prayer the same way i would treat my own you see i think That's only possible. It's only possible for us to see that larger story when we allow God to change our perspective. It's a little thing from an art instruction book, actually, talking about single-point perspective. Bringing everything from, you know, drawing in a way where you're seeing things from one perspective where you have one vanishing point that everything goes towards, and it's a... You know, not too advanced technique, but a very useful one for seeing the way that we would see naturally. In fact, with that single point perspective, there's a lot we can see. We can see a lot from that one perspective. But we can't see everything. I think it's only possible for us to see our story as part of the larger story and truly be unified with one another in what God is doing with us and through us. When we allow God to change our perspective from only our one point to his view of everything and what's going on in the larger story. Moving moving us from the only perspective possible in the flesh, which is our own. The only set of eyes we've got. And moving us to the perspective only possible through the work of the Spirit. Only possible when we come to understand what it means to be knit together as part of the body of Christ. Not by ourselves, but by a Father who loves us, who wants to see His will done and would love to see us be a part of it. If you need to have that perspective this morning, if you need to be part of that body and you're not... You want to see a world that's bigger than what you've seen from your own perspective. You want to see the larger story. I think you can only see it with God's help. You can only see it by His Spirit that will be given to you as you come to God on His terms. If you need to come to Him this morning to enter into His kingdom, to become part of that body, to become part of that larger story, we'd love to help you do that this morning. And if you're already part of His kingdom and maybe you've, your perspective's gotten a little bit narrow and you need the prayers of the church. You need us to surround you with prayer. You need us to be on your team, on the field with you, and you want to be on our team, on the field with us as we encourage and support one another, as we minister and we serve and we love together. If there's anything we can do to help you with that this morning, if there's anything that you need, we'd love to help you with that this morning. Just come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.